Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. You know, in that, that last hymn that we were just singing, in many ways that is a application of our third point. Uh, I said it better than I can say it. Um, so that's, the words are they're quite, quite wonderful. Peace on earth is our theme from 1 Kings 4. This is the second half of chapter 4. And I read a very helpful illustration in Philip Ryken's uh, commentary on 1 Kings. So far, I've loved it. It's been very helpful. And he gives the illustration of this Pennsylvania artist that I, I'm sure I've heard of him before, and I'm sure I've looked at this picture, but I didn't remember it when I started reading it. And if you're familiar with the, his series of paintings called The Peaceable Kingdom by Edward Hicks, uh, then you would be familiar with uh, the illustration that I'm beginning with. If you remember some of those paintings, and, and apparently he painted multiple scenes, right, of children with wild animals and nature, and everyone is at peace, right? And a lot of these paintings, you can look them up. I looked up several. And I think I remember seeing these things in the past, but... Wild and domestic animals, ox, often a wolf, a lion, a leopard, a lamb. And the children would often, a a child would have one arm wrapped around uh, the lion's neck. And he painted that because of something that he read in the Bible from Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah 11 we read, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And the calf and the young lion and the, fa- and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. That's Isaiah eleven six. It's a picture in the Old Testament of peace on earth. However you interpret that, right? There's harmony there, and it's quite a beautiful statement. And he painted these paintings based upon that scriptural verse. Now, in the first part of chapter 4, we studied a few weeks ago something about Solomon's administration in his kingdom. Remember, he divided the nation up into 12 districts. They didn't quite line up with the tribal areas, and each district had a governor. And what was the job of the governor of that district? For one month of the year, that governor had a responsibility to provide all of the provisions that we will now read about tonight for the court of Solomon. Right, all of the food, and later we'll read about the size of his horses for his chariots. I think there are two applications that we considered when we looked at that passage in verses 1 through 19. And the first one was that God is an organized God. We see that in the first pages of Scripture in the story of creation, the history of how this world was created, but more so we see God's order, his organization, and his wisdom in the plan of salvation, right? He sent his son to be our savior. And because of that, our second application was related to the fact that we too are made in the image and likeness of God, and we are to reflect, right, a certain order, right, in our lives, especially in the church. And often God uses a order and administration as a means to advance his kingdom, Uh, We see that all throughout the Old Testament uh, and and also into the New. One author provides a little bit of a summary of this part of chapter 4, what we are encountering tonight. And he says this particular verse 20, we kind of begin. I don't know if it's the end of the previous section or the beginning, but he says there's a new section here about Solomon's rule over 
Israel, and even over other kingdoms. He says it is generally, it is revealed that Israel's peace and prosperity are related to his dominion and the surrounding nations that are now servants to him. They also contribute to the prosperity of Israel. Now that would mean that if if for some reason that prosperity of the external kingdoms diminishes, that that's going to affect the nation at large. Okay, Our first thought this evening is that this particular piece in the age of Solomon was marked by prosperity, right? Really, really great prosperity, especially in the royal court. This peace This peaceful prosperity was a joyful blessing to all. Now, I think when we come to read verses 20 through 21 in a moment, that that's a summary, right, of what all of chapter 4, and for much of Solomon's reign, right, people were happy, uh, and that's what we will read in a moment. However, before we read that, Paul House makes an interesting comment about people in government uh, that I think is applicable even perhaps to today. He says, quote, only prosperity keeps people from resenting large government and new taxes. He's talking about Solomon's day. Uh, I suspect if we gave a pop quiz right now that most of you would probably agree with that, right? He goes on to say Israel's population, right, it grew steadily. There are more people now living in Israel under, the, under this king than it, perhaps at any time before Israel was a nation. Food was plentiful. The nation enjoyed good spirits. Solomon gained both divine and popular favor. This is perhaps one of the climactic moments in the Old Testament, Right? That really demonstrates God's blessing. Tribute money and taxation was pouring in from the surrounded, surrounding nations because his father David, the king, had subdued them. This needed income is important, not only for Solomon's kingdom, but it goes back later to the material blessing promise that, is, that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So in verses 20... We begin, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. That's like a summary two-verse uh, description of really everything in chapter 4 and much of the, of, of, of the reign of Solomon. Right? These were good days in Israel. God was blessing the kingdom because God was answering Solomon's prayer that he prayed when he became king. So that's a helpful summary uh, that we read about. And the people, again, they were content. They were not fighting against their government. They were happy with what Solomon had done. This reality reminds us of why, Solomon's, of, of why Solomon prayed that God would give him wisdom and understanding because the nation he knew was growing and he, he wanted help from God to, to govern, to lead all of these people. That phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, or to be glad or happy, is a positive statement. It's not a negative statement at all. It describes their contentment, their happiness, and the harmony that existed, right, at least on a surface level throughout much of the nation. The language and sequence of eating, drinking, and rejoicing of verse 20 is typically, I learned this, is typically described, is is used to describe the activity of the temple of the sanctuary. That's that's fascinating, isn't it? That, That brings in another flavor. That's found in Deuteronomy 12, 
verses 7 and 18, Deuteronomy 14, 26, and Deuteronomy 27, verse 7. And so these verses, especially verse 21, it summarizes that Solomon enjoyed a powerful reign in Israel. Solomon's powerful, prosperous reign extended over even the Gentile peoples of his day, the surrounding nations of Israel. Can that not, does that not foreshadow one that is greater than Solomon who will rule all of the nations one day? I think it certainly does. That word tribute in this context is not necessarily the same as taxation. It could be gifts. And here we have Gentile nations, Gentile dignitaries bringing their gifts to King Solomon, and they too show a certain kind of thankfulness to him, even though they are not equal to him, they're subservient to King Solomon. In addition to that, they were required to pay their annual tax to Israel. This peaceful prosperity is seen in Solomon's table. One author summarized the whole thing. The prosperity in this kingdom was seen from the table to the stable. That's an easy way to remember that. Such a growing nation with big government requires vast resources. That would be true anywhere in the world today, wouldn't it? I'm going to read verses 20 through 22 from the New Living Translation because it uses things like bushels, things that we might be more familiar with for measurement. The daily food, verse 22, the daily food, this is what Solomon's court required. For the palace were were 195 bushels of fine flour, 390 bushels of meal, 10 oxen from the fattening pens, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, and from time to time, deer, gazelles, roebucks, and plump fowl. I mean, that's a staggering amount of food that was required for the daily provisions of the royal court. And that is given there to probably cause us to pause and be impressed with how vast the prosperity was under King Solomon. I don't know if it's true, but one author mentioned that when Elon Musk became the richest man in the world, that Solomon was richer still. Is that true? I don't know. Riken says, earlier we learned how Solomon organized his kingdom into 12 districts. Now we're taught, right, the quantity of food that was required for his royal table. Uh, one of the schools that I went to uh, several years ago, the crest, the emblem of the school, had a Latin phrase on it, and it had a description, and I was told that it came from Spain. The crest, or this school symbol, on the right side uh, I didn't know what it was at first, but I learned that the description was uh, two chains that were coming down with, with like cast iron pots, and there were two wolves that were latched onto those pots, and they were eating the food, and I was told that that was a symbol of a time in Spain's history of enormous prosperity, that there was so much food that even the wolves could eat freely of the meat that was provided. That is a kind of a reflection of what we are reading here, there was an abundance of food, not only for Solomon's kingdom, but the people themselves were quite happy. They weren't worried. Other Bible scholars have noted several interesting parallels between Solomon and Adam, and they're not accidental, right? You might think that they are, as well as the connection to the creation and wisdom. We, we, we already sung about both of those themes uh, this evening, the last description in verse 23, verse 23, 
says, from time to time, deer, gazelles, roebucks, and plump fowl may well indicate that some of these animals were simply table luxuries. I mean, Solomon was entertaining a lot of Gentile leaders that were coming, uh, not just Israelite governors. Lots of people came to his court. And that leads us to kind of wonder, like, how many people uh, must have worked for Solomon? And the estimates that I've read range from anywhere from 12,000 to 35,000 people were there to serve the royal court in Jerusalem under the reign, the powerful, prosperous reign of King Solomon. It's staggering, isn't it? All of the food, all of the chefs, all of the people, the military, the builders. The Bible presents the reign of Solomon as a time of great prosperity. The reign of King Solomon, in many respects, is the zenith. It's the peak. It's the summit. It's the high point of Old Testament history. And by the way, the sevenfold list of animals may also be a reflection, an echo back to creation and Adam. Our second thought tonight is, This peace was marked by dominion. It wasn't just a prosperous kingdom. It was a powerful kingdom. And those two often go together, don't they? One of the reasons why Solomon needed so much food was related to the extent of this powerful reign. Some of this food was used for visiting perhaps dignitaries from other nations, government officials, and as well as those that came from Israel the surrounding provincial districts. In verse 28, we read this, For he, Solomon, had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tiphash to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. This is peace on earth in a real way in a country, isn't it? And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, Every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000, or that could be 4,000. We'll talk about that later briefly. Stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who come to King Solomon's table, came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. This is just commenting more on what we learned in the first half of chapter 4. Again, then these, these details that we read about are examples of the blessing and the power that led to this moment in time in Israel's history of an experience of peace on earth. And it's largely positive. The people were happy. They were contented with their government. They lived in safety. They lived in security. And they all seemed to have enough food. And some have indicated that phrase about the vine and the fig, that they all owned their own property. They had their own place to live. In verses 24 at the end and 25, we read that statement, and he had peace on all sides around him. Verse 25 said, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. You might want to get a map out and look at what are these boundaries? Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. What a description of the peace on earth that that existed in the nation of Israel. These are covenant blessings, right, that God had promised long ago through Moses. 
and through Deuteronomy. They were covenant blessings that were being experienced by the people. Even unbelieving nations recognized this great blessing and this great dominion of Solomon. In 2 Kings 18.31, the king of Assyria has some interesting thoughts there. When, he's, when they're at a broken time in their history, he's using the vine fig language and say, look, come and serve me and I'm going to make sure you're secure. It's in a very different context. And so even the unbelieving Gentiles knew what that language meant. Paul House says, for now, though, Israel seems content that they have finally reached the goal they said almost a century before when they asked Samuel for a king. And they didn't, they asked for, we want to have, have a, a, a king to be like all of the other prominent nations. In a, in a sense, they've, they've come to that. But the statement about safety, that is security in verse 25, every, every one under his vine and under his fig tree is also charged with eschatology, isn't it? It's not just a comment about the economy in Israel. There's something beyond that that anticipates something far greater, a far greater peace that will one day be experienced on this earth. The statement about the people living in security has an echo from Deuteronomy 8 and especially Micah chapter 4, verse 4. Fig trees are mentioned in Deuteronomy 8.8 as a part of of the description of God's blessing upon his people as they live in obedience. But especially Micah 4, 1 through 4, that that, that description that that I'm going to read in a moment, part of that, it it begins in the last days. It is a text, a prophetic statement about the great security that will come, the great prosperity that will come in the last days. It talks about the temple in Mount Zion will be the highest mountain in all of the earth. It's it's a poetic statement, isn't it? In verse 3 of Micah 3, there will be universal peace. And that's that passage that says that we won't have weapons of war anymore. We won't need weapons of war anymore. And we come to verse 4. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. There's a similar statement in Zechariah 3.10, and another one that is found in Isaiah 2, 1-5. All of this language about the mountain of the Lord, and that everyone will live in safety, that was not fulfilled in Solomon's day because it was written after he died. There was still something lacking, even though God had brought a certain level of fulfillment. This description of safety under Solomon's reign appears to point back to something perhaps in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. And it also, I think, points forward to our King Jesus Christ, who is far greater than Adam or even Solomon, who will accomplish the Father's plan for creation, but through his work of redemption. In verse 26, I mentioned briefly that there might be a, a textual or an error in the manuscript and who was copying. It's probably not 40,000. It probably is closer to 4,000. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, in Second Chronicles 9.25, the number of Solomon's chariots is 500. And that seems to be more of an accurate, a realistic number uh, that is given. A comment about verse 26, which again says Solomon had either, your Bible says 40,000 or 4,000 stalls for his chariot horses. He had 12,000 horses. That's 
I read that in the New Living Translation because they changed the number. In the midst of this joyful part of First Kings, several authors have asked us to stop and pause for a moment in all of the prosperity, all of the blessings, and it, it was all from God, wasn't it? And one of the authors says, maybe there's a hint here of something we need to stop and think about. Is Solomon at this point, even though his prayer is being answered, he's being blessed by God, is Solomon starting to shift his trust from God to the power of his military and all of the horses? Other authors have made some very helpful insights on this. And one says, as we shall see by the time we get to the end of Solomon's story, right? It's really a few more chapters away. This large number of horses and chariots was cause for real concern, whether it's 4,000 or 40, right? Both of those numbers should be, raise alarm bells in our minds. Didn't Moses say something about when you get a king, the king is not supposed to do certain things? In Deuteronomy 17, 16, one of the things that Moses instructed Israel when they would acquire a king one day was that that king should not, quote, acquire many horses for himself. And all of that is listed in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. God did not want his sons, right, the royal son, to put their trust in their military. He wanted them to put their trust in him. And at some point in Solomon's life, he stops trusting in God and he starts trusting in other things, in the blessings. I guess you could say he stops appreciating the great giver and he, he appreciates the gift more. And he loses his focus. But we're not told exactly when this happens. This may be a hint of that. It would have been better for Solomon to listen to his father because his father said something about this, didn't he? His father wrote, in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust the name of the Lord our God. Solomon knew that his father wrote that. that. That is a statement of great wisdom. It still applies to us today, doesn't it? I don't know if David wrote the other statement in Psalm 33. There's no heading there. But that verse says in verse 16 through 17, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And then another passage you may want to read at some point, if you're interested in this, it's a short chapter, read Isaiah 31. It begins with, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And it talks about some of these same things. Is Solomon beginning to do that? In fact, Isaiah 31 also says when it says, Woe to those who go to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Samuel warned the people, right, that the royal court and the kings could tend to be excessive in what they wanted, what was provided for them. And if Solomon didn't have all of those horses, he wouldn't have had to take all those people from the surrounding provincial areas of the, of the Israelite villages and take them for his use. Solomon or Samuel warned about that too, didn't he? And I like a description that one author, Ian Proven, uses to describe this particular set of verses in 1 Kings 4. He says, the king's chariots and his horses, it's a ticking time bomb. It, that says it perfectly, doesn't it? It's a ticking time bomb. 
We don't know at what point exactly Solomon's his heart is drawn away. Maybe it was a gradual drawing away. Rather than resisting the seduction of power, this author says, Solomon built a stronger army and then relied on the security it supposedly brought to his kingdom. And it might be difficult to tell if the kingdom is very prosperous, right? Seems like Solomon is doing great things. In the coming chapters, we are going to be confronted with Solomon's failure to trust and obey the Lord. This peaceful dominion fulfilled God's promise, right? There's a certain level of fulfillment that I think we have to acknowledge. Dale Ralph Davis says this language here that we read, it's covenant code, language like, as the sand by the sea. That comes from the book of Genesis, especially Genesis twenty-two seventeen, when God speaks to Abraham. But how do we understand this? Again, look at a map in the Bible or think about it in your mind, this vast region that Solomon rules over. It's a large area, and it corresponds for the most part to what God said in Genesis fifteen eighteen. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the Wadi, the river of Egypt, to the great river, the Euphrates. And here we see that that was fulfilled on, a, on, a, on an earthly level, right? Solomon ruled over all that territory. There is a connection there back to the Abrahamic promise. That is what God promised. And so peace on earth all hangs on God's promise, even though we don't always see it in our lifetime. Another helpful note that another author cautions all of us, right, as readers of Scripture. He says we should be cautiously optimistic when we read this chapter in 1 Kings. He says after all, the passage seems like the author put it here on purpose, right, as he explains the reign of Solomon and the developments. Maybe he places it here to inform us that the promises made by God to Abraham about land and blessing, right, to David about the rulership and succession and peace, and even to Solomon about his leadership skill, right, they've all come to pass in their lifetime. Israel is enjoying the benefits of the blessings that are spoken about in the book of Deuteronomy, particularly verses chapters 27 and 28. It's not the final fulfillment, but it is a fulfillment. The reign of Solomon brings God's promises from creation to another level of fulfillment. And then our last thought is, this peace was marked by wisdom, right? Prosperity, vast dominion, and now by wisdom. This peaceful wisdom was God's gift to Solomon. We know that from his prayer, right? When we already studied that earlier in 1 Kings. The final verses, as we come to verses 28 through 34, describe this vast scale and scope of Solomon's impressive God-given wisdom. And it goes beyond knowing the Scriptures. That should be encouraging to us. Verse 29 begins, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all the other men, wiser than Etham the Ezrathite and Heman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. This peaceful, powerful reign, this vast, prosperous reign was marked clearly by Solomon being the wisest man on earth. 
the wisest ruler on earth. Wisdom was prized in the ancient world. The Bible seems to clearly acknowledge that some of these surrounding nations, they had their own wisdom literature, didn't they? Solomon was perhaps aware of it. Some think that Solomon borrowed some things, some things from the Egyptian wisdom literature, and we, we, they appear in the book of Proverbs, or they're very similar to that. Egypt and other nations excelled in wisdom. Some of the names are Gentiles, some are Jewish. But God granted wisdom to Solomon to surpass all of those people that already had a measure of common grace wisdom in their life. Some of them, believers, would have had God's gift of wisdom. God's gift of wisdom to King Solomon encompassed essentially everything in creation. That's the point I was trying to make earlier. When we talk about this level of wisdom, it's everywhere on earth. That's where it's found in Solomon's life as he, he, observes not, he observes God's word, yes, but he also observes God's creation. Yes, it included deep spiritual insights that are found in the Proverbs. We only have perhaps a few of the, the songs that he wrote. He wrote over a thousand songs in his lifetime. But he was also curious about a lot of other areas in life, especially the whole work of creation, natural life. We would call that today the sciences. Solomon's wisdom was not limited simply to reading his Bible, but it extended to every meaningful activity. He could learn something about God through the creation everywhere he went. And of course, reading the Proverbs helps us to understand that. And so when we think about this element of wisdom, yes, it's great to read your Bible every day. But wisdom does not stop when you close your Bible. You can still learn about wisdom in this world all throughout creation. We can marvel at all kinds of things as we will see in a moment in the description of Solomon's wisdom. House says, without question, God has been faithful to Solomon. And then the question is, will Solomon return the favor? I think we all know the answer to that question. We encountered the phrase, as many as the sand by the sea in verse 20. Maybe your Bible has a slightly different translation of that. When the author describes the the people of Judah and Israel, he's describing the nation when he uses that term. But notice that the author, he uses the phrase to describe King Solomon with that term in verse 29. It, it applies to a nation and it also applies to an individual. This phrase, as many as the sand by the sea, was originally promised to Abraham, right? Remember that when God said that? And then it applied to the nation of Israel. In First Kings, we see it first being applied to the nation and then to the individual, the king himself, Solomon. Solomon's reign not only fulfills the promises of Joshua's conquest, it also demonstrates the Lord's faithfulness to fulfill the promise to Abraham. Under Solomon, Israel's life is, right, it is a peace on earth experience. There's harmony, there's safety, there's joy in the population. Israel finally becomes as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And something that I did not know, when that phrase is used between Abraham and Solomon, it always refers to Israel's enemies. It doesn't refer to the people of God. Finally, it's like after all of these centuries of God's promise, we start, we start to see a better fulfillment of that. Now to God's people, not to the false Israels of the world. 
Again, in verse 29, describes that, that Solomon's breadth of heart, right? The king has a hearing heart. That goes back to what we studied in chapter 3, verse 9. He has a heart of wisdom broad enough to rule a people that cannot be counted, right? A numerous people. His kingdom stretches between the waters of the Mediterranean Sea and the waters of the Euphrates River and from north to, ta- north to south from Dan to Beersheba. Again, that's, and, and, and because it includes Gentile nations, you, know, you start to wonder, does that also anticipate that a greater king will rule from all of the four corners of the earth? There is a, there is a word play here that I learned when I studied this, and I'll try to give you the verses so that you can follow what I'm going to say here, but this is in verse 21, verse 24, and verse 32. The word that you want to look at in your translation in verse 21 might be the word ruled. In 24, the word have dominion or dominion. And in verse 32, wisdom. There's a Hebrew word play here on what is being said. And of course, the point of this, one of the points of this is that the author is comparing Solomon to Adam before he fell. Again, that's probably quite profound. There are several interesting Connections, comparisons, contrasts between Adam and Solomon. And they don't seem to be just accidental here. Beyond Adam, right, he eats from the tree of the wisdom that demonstrates his wisdom by by organizing the kingdom in his day, right? He does lots of things. Solomon does very similar things in his day. All these displays of wisdom bring him glory beyond the glory of any kings of his time. That could be a, a sample or an illustration. There, there is something of Eden being, being restored on earth. It's a reflection back to Eden. It's not just a reflection going forward. It's going in both directions. And so the word play comes down to this. In verse 21, the author uses a Hebrew word ruled in English that sounds almost identical to the word proverb in verse 32. In verse 24, the verb, the Hebrew word to have dominion, right, is used. The, the word in verse 21, it, it's a play on word. It's a pun. It sounds very similar to the word proverb or riddle, whatever your translation has in English. Again, the point of all of this, of why I'm mentioning this, is because the verb in verse 24 is the same verse, verb that is found in Genesis 1.26. And that verb doesn't just pop up everywhere in the Old Testament. And so we have to start wondering why is the author using a particular verb that was first given to Adam, now describing Solomon's powerful, prosperous, wise reign. By having dominion over the nations surrounding Israel, Solomon, in some sense, is fulfilling the, Abraham, the, the command, the mandate given to Adam to rule and to subdue the earth. And I'll just summarize Five statements that G.K. Beale uses. He wrote on this very, very insightful, five helpful statements of connecting Adam to Solomon in this comparison. And before I read that, here is something he says. He says, the description of the height of Solomon's kingship has more literary resonances or connections with Genesis 1 verses 26 to 27 in its immediate context, and any other narrative about Israelite kings. Out of all the kings of the sons of David, Solomon is the most compared to Adam. The description of Solomon's wisdom more than any other Israelite king 
can be compared to Adam from other Old Testament texts outside of Genesis. That's the first thing. Secondly, the wisdom of Solomon is directly related to nature and creation, right? Just as Adam did, subtle associations with the Garden of Eden. Third, Solomon's prayer for wisdom may well reflect associations with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? To discern evil. That goes right back to the Genesis account. That was the job of Adam. The theme of discernment between good and evil is found in both passages. Fourth, Adam skillfully named all the animals. And King Solomon, right, was a wisdom master who who is proverbial descriptions of animals. The the fourfold description is almost identical from Genesis to what we read here in 1 Kings chapter 4. And then fifth, these Adam-like traits are associated with King Solomon more than any other Israelite king. That doesn't seem to be a mere coincidence or an accident. If anything, it tells us that the commission God had given to Adam and failed, it's now being picked back up again, right? Promised to, promised to Abraham, and now it's coming to fruition after the promise to David in the king of Solomon. This peaceful wisdom was known far and wide, right? And the people that knew Solomon of his day, they all knew about the wisdom of this great king. This description that we have of Solomon, right, his knowledge of the natural world, it seems to include all of the created categories of living things, right? Again, this goes right back. It sounds like it's, it's, it's the same vocabulary in Genesis 2, 19-20. Beasts, birds, creepers, or reptiles, and fish. Israel is called to be an Adamic race, and Solomon is the chief example of that at this time in history. Verse 32 says this, He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. I mean, the, the extent of the wisdom, right, the breadth and the depth of it is quite amazing, he speaks about moral issues, right, as we, as, as we read the book of Proverbs. He speaks about moral issues, but also material things in creation, in science, and, and, and things that we can learn, bugs. He speaks of things that live and move, but also he writes music and has lyrics. He appreciates the stately trees of the cedars of Lebanon, but he also notices what others have called the, the trivial, the, the little weed that grows out of the rock in a wall. He seems to think that I can learn something about God. God has left his fingerprints all over creation. There's another way to look at it. That vision of wisdom is actually quite liberating, isn't it? Even though there are lots of distortions in science today, you can be a Christian and still love science and excel in science and know that there is something about the wisdom of God displayed in science. The same thing for about everything else in the world, music right? Poetry. You could go on and on and on. There is a certain order and beauty that we can behold as God's people. And it's all based on the wisdom of God to help us to see just how amazing even our fallen world is. Solomon was observing a fallen world. And he notices all of these things about wisdom that we still have to read today. Did you notice there? Probably you didn't. I didn't when I read it. This is a sevenfold description of wisdom. Again, that's probably not an accident. Now, one thing that I didn't tell you about that introduction 
Edward Hicks's painting, and I'll ask you this question. How did those paintings change in his lifetime? I was not even aware of this. He started to paint right, those paintings differently. What was missing, and what did he adapt it to? He, they, they no longer became peaceful paintings, right? We now see animals like tearing themselves apart. There is no peace in the painting. What What happened? He paints things that are descriptions of disunity and disharmony. It's especially because he was affected by what he experienced in the church. He read about this promise of peace on earth from Isaiah and he longed for it. But in his experience in the church on earth, he did not experience that. What a lesson for all of us to stop and ponder. And it's displayed in his artwork in the transition that took place in his own life, he became perhaps very disheartened. I don't even know what kind of a church he belonged to. But it's a reminder that Jesus Christ came to establish unity in his kingdom. And yet because of our own ongoing battles with sin, we often witness different kinds of tensions and division in the church on earth that should not take place. It's quite sad, isn't it? We see brokenness in our world. We see lots of division and lots of turmoil. Charles Spurgeon said in relation to this text, the kingdom of Israel under the sway of Solomon is a type of the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then he went on to say, the present state of the church may be compared to the reign of David, splendid with victories, but disturbed with battles. But brothers and sisters, there are better days coming. That promise from God that there will be peace on earth is true, even though we do not yet live in the full accomplishment of that fact. There is going to be peace on this planet, and it's going to last forever. And it's all because of what Jesus Christ has done when he came into this world to die for sinners. Looking at Solomon's peaceable kingdom is an excellent way for us to see the blessings that God has has accomplished for us. In Jesus Christ. As we close tonight, we, I think it's obvious that the reign of King Solomon, it points forward to a greater reign of Jesus Christ. If Solomon's peaceful kingdom was marked by the prosperity, the dominion, and wisdom in his day, how much more that of Jesus Christ? God allowed Solomon to establish a temporary peace on earth for a limited period of time in the land of Israel. However, the great The great reign of King Solomon was too temporary, wasn't it? It was too imperfect. It didn't rise to the level of what Robert read in Psalm 72, written by Solomon himself, about the greatest royal son that begins, give the king your justice. I wonder at times if in the gospel there's a double meaning to that, because Jesus did receive justice from the Father on the cross, didn't he? And yet at the same time, there's going to be a justice that is established that is going to lead to a reign of eternal peace on earth. Solomon was described as the wisest king on earth until Jesus came. Jesus far surpasses the human, the the, the wisdom, the gift of wisdom that God gave to Solomon. Jesus himself is the wisdom of God. He has perfect wisdom. Solomon did rule over a vast reign, but King Jesus will rule over more than just a single nation. He will rule, according to Psalm 72, from sea to sea. The extent of his kingdom is universal, and it's forever. 
Many kings from Israel, surrounding nations, bowed down to Solomon in his day, but when Solomon's reign became weak, right, after he died and the kingdom is divided, some of those kings broke free from Solomon. They wanted nothing to do with him. They took advantage of the lack of peace in Israel. Again, it appeared that Solomon wrote Psalm 72. It's a marvelous description of the ultimate peace on earth, something that he himself must have known would go far beyond his own lifetime. Again, in verse 11, we read, May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. I wish that every leader in our country would bow down to Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be just incredibly marvelous, miraculous? We don't witness this, right, as citizens in our country, and many people don't in their countries as well. When Isaiah prophesied the coming of Christ, he said, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The angels made the same promise when Jesus, on the night when Jesus was born to the shepherds. Did they not say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those to whom his favor rests? A peaceable kingdom is one of the promises of God that we can experience, and we experience it in part in Christ, this peace on earth, because what he has done. And it seems to me that this peace on earth that King Jesus brings to us comes to us in two stages, in his first coming and in his second coming. In his first coming, the way in which Jesus establishes peace is quite different than the way David and Solomon established their peace too, isn't it? It wasn't done by fighting a military war between one's enemies. Jesus established a lasting peace to restore our relationship to the Father. That which Adam had lost, Jesus secured our eternal peace and even our safety with the Father when he endured the judgment of God on our behalf at the cross. It's as if we have, got, we have peace on earth, peace with God, because of the wrath that fell upon Jesus for us. Jesus established peace by enduring enduring divine wrath to pay for our sin. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we enter into the saving relationship with him, doesn't Paul tell us in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a lasting peace that we can experience on this earth that anticipates he will come again. This peace on earth should be manifested of all places on earth in the church, in our lives, and in the church. It should call us to love one another. The world should know that we are peacemakers and that we love one another. Too often our sin and our pride get in the way and in a relationship right, with one another in the church, and we see all kinds of ugly things. We read about ugly things, strife. And at times, the lack of peace in the church is enough to make some people just so discouraged, they just want to quit and give up. And yet, we cannot lose heart. We know that God can sustain us. He can help us to foster unity amongst His people, right? And appreciate the peace that comes through the work of Jesus Christ for us. And when we have opportunity to evangelize, we are extending that peace, that opportunity to have peace with God to those people in this world that are not yet at peace with God. And that is one way how the peace on this earth will extend before the great coming of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. In his second coming, the powerful, glorious, and eternal reign of, G- of King Jesus, it will be made visible to all of the peoples of the earth. It's not made visible yet, is it? All nations will one day behold the final appearance of King Jesus. But for all who reject King Jesus, they will not see the Prince of Peace coming in the air in power and glory. They will see a day of judgment that will result in an eternity of divine judgment for which they will never escape. But for those in Christ Jesus, the reality of peace on earth, begun in his first coming, it will be completed when he comes again for us. Until that day comes, we thank God for the peace that has come on this earth through Christ. And I will close with those final verses from Psalm 72. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reign of King Solomon and your blessing upon it. It was a prosperous kingdom. That reign on earth, it was a powerful Uh, reign, and it was a wise reign. And Lord, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, your son, he is the final, the great Davidic king, the great son of David. And Lord, he has come to establish peace on earth. And Lord, we thank you that in the sending of your son into this world, the wrath that he took for our salvation, Father, we can thank you for the words of the apostle Paul, that we now have peace with you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be peacemakers and to foster peace and unity in our congregation. We thank you so much, Lord, for already the wonderful joys that we experience in that area. And Father, help us with the opportunity you give to us to extend that peace to sinners who have not yet come to terms with who you are. Lord, that we would tell them about Jesus Christ and tell them to lay down their weapons now and to surrender and to come in faith and believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this day. We pray that you bless our week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.